slave that we find his most extended analysis of white unwillingness. The story is not quite fiction. Rather, it's a reimagining of the real Madison Washington, a slave who in 1841 mutinied aboard the slaver, the Creole, on the way to New Orleans and with others, rerouted the ship to Nassau where slavery was unlawful. What distinguishes this novella from Douglas's other writings and from other depictions of the mutiny is that he wrote it from the perspective of two fictional white men who witnessed Washington's testimony and deeds. Through this story and indeed in writing it, Douglas suggests that unwilling whites require what I call a heroic imagination in which black resistance is envisioned as inevitable and natural. This imagination situates individuals between fact and fiction, uh, moving their political goals from judgment to action. I'll take you through this argument by walking through the narrative of the heroic slave twice. First, to explain the white's unwillingness, and second, to examine black resistance. I'll then step back to the context in which Douglas wrote the story. Part one introduces us to the northerner, Mr. Listwell, traveling by horse in a Virginian forest when he overhears the enslaved Washington deliver a speech for his freedom. Washington bears witness to all he has endured, and Douglas is drawing clear allusions here to his own life before he resolves, I shall be free. He will emancipate himself and his wife, and so he leaves. Seeing Washington and hearing his experiences, Listwell leaves part one verbally committed to justice. He stands and says, I am an abolitionist. This is promising. But throughout the novella, Douglas shows how Listwell wavers in his convictions. Part two takes place in Listwell's Ohio home five years later, where it's clear nothing has changed. He and his wife stay huddled around the, quote, smoldering embers of his hearth, while heavy winds outside forecast a storm. In speeches, Douglas called slavery a slumbering volcano. Douglas writes here that a whole wilderness of thought might pass through one's mind during such an evening, but there's no sign that Listwell has acted on his convictions. We see here how society's separate spaces shield whites from the injustice that's bearing down on the nation like a natural disaster, the distance of the North from the South, the private and familial from the politics of slavery. Suddenly, the fugitive Washington appears at their door, and Listwell welcomes him inside to tell his story. It's clear he's become a better ally. Indeed, at the end of part two, Listwell helps Washington board a steamboat, and Douglas writes, he had befriended a man to whom the laws of his country forbade all friendship. But part three again reveals Listwell as unwilling to commit. We find him a year later in a Virginia tavern talking with local whites about a nearby slave auction. Here Douglas shows that it's not only the separate spaces of society, but it's discursive, it's normative scripts that encourage apathy. Douglas voices these characters as though staging a play. And that evening, Listwell eavesdrops as his barmates guess his identity. When they conclude that he must be a slave buyer, Listwell decides to play along, even though he knows better. 
this script has such a hold on Listwell that another encounter with Washington only briefly renews his judgment. The next morning, he sees a slave market for the first time, and he's startled to see Washington there, and he greets him. When later, Washington tells Listwell of what led to his recapture, Listwell is again unwilling, chastising him for returning south. So in the first three parts, Listwell is motivated only when meeting Washington. He ends each part a better ally, but the novella's serialization reveals what little Listwell does when away in society. Evidence and testimony are not enough to bring him to sustained action. Although we see less of him, the same is true for the Southern white protagonist of the book's part four, which takes place in a Virginia coffee house two months after Washington's mutiny. There, a bunch of sailors demand that the Creole's first mate, Tom Grant, describe the mutiny. He recalls how he tried to fight back, how he was disarmed by Washington's testimony aboard the boat, how from this point forward, he will oppose the slave trade. But Grant is also pulled back. Although Douglas does not frame part four through script, he does describe the whites in that coffee house as though playing a part, espousing racist views while, quote, occasionally casting an imploring glance at the company for applause. Removed from Washington's testimony to these spaces and scripts, Grant is unwilling to commit. He's angry when he's accused of being an abolitionist. And part four ends with him barely conscious of a widening disconnect between his judgment of slavery and his unwillingness to act. The problem for both white men is not that they don't believe Washington. The problem is that society renders it easy to separate from this evidence or to accommodate it within scripts of white superiority. Now, Douglas leaves Listwell in a far better position. The day after their conversation in part three, Listwell is suddenly moved to help Washington. He follows him to Richmond, where he passes him the very tools that Washington will use to remove his shackles on board. But Douglas doesn't explain here how Listwell found the will to act. To see what made Listwell act uh, and what Douglas believed would help Americans overcome their unwillingness requires we retrace our steps. I've focused on white unwillingness, but there is considerable black agency and solidarity throughout the heroic slave. The catch is that Douglas places this resistance just beyond the view of his white characters and his readers, encouraging both to what I call a heroic imagination. For example, Consider Washington's testimony in Listwell's home during part two. Washington recalls how while returning south to save his family, he briefly climbed a tree upon hearing the voices of black men who had come to clear the forest. After one of the men knelt near to pray, Washington was so moved that he descended from his hiding place. The worker was alarmed, but after Washington revealed his story, to embrace. Part three again presents black solidarity just out of Listwell's view as he leaves the tavern to see Washington awaiting auction. Douglas writes here 
that the hundred plus other enslaved men and women stand by as quote, mute spectators while the two men talk. It's only when Listwell departs that one man speaks up to ask Washington of his identity. And Washington tells his comrades that this stranger is not less your friend than mine. We in Listwell are left to imagine the many other spaces like this beyond our verification. Listwell likely buys those tools the next day, inspired by what he had glimpsed of Washington's camaraderie with others. Imagining black resistance can also shake the unwilling through fear, fear of what will happen to those who do not act for justice, fear that demands they rethink those spaces and scripts that justify white superiority. For example, the mutiny itself occurs in the margins of the heroic slave. Only through Grant's account in part four can we and the sailors imagine what occurred there. Now we know from this story and from other speeches that Douglas did not believe the Creole mutiny was a model to follow. Racial justice did not require blacks to leave America. The mutiny is instead an object of imagination. It disrupts scripts of white superiority by treating black solidarity as not only ongoing, but natural. As Washington told Grant aboard the boat, he said, you cannot write the bloody laws of slavery on those restless billows. Natural law demands liberty for all. Douglas believes that if these whites and his readers see the mutiny as a natural consequence of this law, that their imagination will encourage in them an active critical interrogation of slavery. When a sailor, house, sailor in the coffee house tells Grant that, oh, he was simply ignorant in the ways of subjecting black people, Grant reposts that offshore, away from the laws and institutions of slavery, Racist theories like this will not, he says, stand the test of salt water. Grant's story requires his audience to imagine what he witnessed and to interrogate their own adherence to these illusions. And I say required there because for Douglas, the resistance that Grant witnessed was already fomenting on land. After the mutiny, Washington captains the Creole through a storm, just like the one outside Listwell's home. In speeches, Douglas depicted the sea as a state of nature and the U.S. as a state of war. One reveals natural law, the other denies it. So these scenes don't fully redeem the two protagonists, but they reinforce Douglas's lesson that a heroic imagination envisions Black resistance as natural and ongoing beyond the perspective or judgment of whites. Douglas, of course, argued elsewhere that Black Americans should testify against slavery, should bind together in solidarity and in friendship with whites. But it is the work of imagination to move whites to action, to interrupt the spaces and scripts that encourage unwillingness. The way I've discussed the heroic slave so far is to treat it as a story, a narrative through which Douglas analyzes this problem. 
If we step back to consider the political context, we see that for Douglas, the novella was itself an act of heroic imagination. The Creole mutiny of 1841 was only the most recent of the many antebellum slave rebellions that stirred national controversy. And what worried slavery's defenders was not simply this resistance, but the stories told thereafter, how anti-slavery voices could compellingly argue that, for example, the 1839 Amistad mutiny proved slavery wrong in international waters and within the United States. Douglas knew that he could not merely write a history of the Creole mutiny like others did. And with Washington gone, the only witness of the mutiny came from the boat's surviving crew. He did hope, of course, that Washington himself would one day recount the story, but as he likely knew from his own testimonies, the first of which he gave in a lecture the same year as the mutiny, it wasn't enough to give a factual account of emancipation. What Douglas knew of Washington, he would rewrite as a work of imagination, filling in blanks based on oral history and the resistance he knew was coming. As he told a New York audience in 1849, he said, there are more Madison Washingtons in the South and the time may not be distant when the whole South will present again a scene something similar to the deck of the Creole. To imagine Washington's deeds would lift him from the obscurity of slave records or the infamy of competing accounts into the dominant narratives of American democracy alongside lovers of liberty like Patrick Henry or Thomas Jefferson. But to elevate Washington alongside these slave owner founders would require Americans rethink those narratives of democracy. Now there's a potential risk here. As activists and scholars like Angela Davis have argued, we should be suspicious of the exceptionalist or masculine language that often accompanies claims of heroism. But the heroic slave testifies not to the hero himself as exemplary, but the heroic imagination that surrounds him. Its focus is on the friendship and solidarity built through it. This is not a call to individually embellish facts, but to collectively envision and act upon what justice will and should be. As Douglas wrote in its opening pages, glimpses of this great character are all that can now be presented. Anxiously we peer into the dark and wish even for the blinding flash to reveal him. And so this novella not only dramatizes the issue and the overcoming of white unwillingness, but it was Douglas's own act of heroic imagination. After all, Washington found his own freedom, but Douglas and America would remain behind to end slavery for all. Thank you very much. Okay, we've got uh, up next, we've got Dr. Moore. Thank you. Two masters of expressing political opinions Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln certainly did not agree on everything, especially during the Civil War. But they did agree that free speech was essential to maintaining our constitutional way of life. Douglass once gave a lecture entitled, Popular Error and Unpopular Truth. He said, there is no such thing as a new truth. Error might be old or new, but truth was as old as the universe. 
The truth that all human beings possess natural rights led Douglas to say of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation that a fatal blow had at last been struck at the root of the gigantic evil. The president's proclamation had given the slaves the legal right to liberty. Now they could obtain their personal freedom without trampling upon civil laws. So Douglas saw the Emancipation Proclamation not as giving, but restoring to the enslaved his natural rights, rights that human laws should have been protecting all along. This was an important observation, born of America's own origin as a nation founded upon timeless truths. The idea of universal natural rights was what Douglas considered an unpopular truth, unpopular because until 1776, no nation on earth believed what Americans held to be self-evidently true. Douglas noted that by emancipating slaves, Mr. Lincoln has dared to apply the old truth of human liberty to his time. He has dared to declare the truth of the Declaration of Independence. With Lincoln and the American founders, Douglas believed human equality was one of those truths as old as the universe. Under the pressure of a civil war, that truth would begin to be secured for all Black Americans. But it was chiefly a contest of words, not a battle of arms, to which Douglas attributed the abolition of slavery. Though wrung out by the stern dictates of military necessity, he declared, it was in reality a moral necessity. Without what he called a principle in man, which induces him to accept truth, Douglas held little hope for progress in human affairs. For him, speech, meaning an appeal to reason, and not might, held the key to progress, uh, progress of liberty in America. He pointed out that it was the preservation of slavery that required violations of free speech. But he was confident that truth must triumph under a system of free discussion. He even quoted Thomas Jefferson to affirm that error might be left free so long as truth was free to combat it. But he added, equally true, though not always equally manifest, is it that error can never be safely tolerated when truth is not left free to combat it. Have we not seen the freedom to speak truth in order to combat error, undermined in recent years on college campuses with the harassment and deplatforming of invited speakers? And now the streets and public venues of major American cities have been scenes of too many peaceful protests overrun by unruly mobs and intimidating protesters. Why this desperation to impose certain views on others? Why prevent the free discussion that Douglas argued was essential to the triumph of truth? What he called the right of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. Why are those who believe so strongly that they possess the truth, so intimidated by those who disagree with them. Likewise, Douglas noted the insecurity that slaveholding societies displayed. Slavery cannot tolerate free speech, he declared. They will have none of it there, for they have the power. With that power, they censored the mails of abolition materials, mobbed speakers who argued for emancipation, and even prohibited the education of slaves. 
Of all the harms Douglas attributed to slavery, he thought the denial of an education was the worst of slavery's ills. It would forever unfit him to be a slave, Douglas recalled his master saying, when he discovered him being taught his letters and learning how to spell. From that moment, Douglas said, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. He believed education, the cultivation of one's reason and the character fit for a truly free life was essential to the improvement of any human being. For Douglas, of course, this meant the cultivation of reading, writing, and speaking. These distinctively human activities elevated them above the brute creation and therefore set Douglas's course for liberation even before his escape from slavery. In the year of Jubilee, December of 1863, Douglas gave a speech entitled, Our Work is Not Done. Looking past the war's end and the abolition of slavery, he predicted greater resistance to the elevation of the freedmen and women than to their emancipation. There was no question that they would need the protection of the federal government. But key to that protection was the right to vote. To those who argued that to grant the franchise to Black Americans was to bring brutality and ignorance into the ballot box, Douglas pointed out their hypocrisy, for they did not bar whites from voting who exhibited those characteristics. In saying this, he replied, you lay down a rule for the Black man that you apply to no other class of your citizens. Then he made it personal. Away with this talk of the want or lack of knowledge on the part of the Negro. I'm about as big a Negro as you will find anywhere about town. And any man that does not believe I know enough to vote, let him try it. I think I can convince him that I do. He then proposed a test. Let him run for office in my district, solicit my vote, and I will show him. By playfully shifting from the strength of his body to the strength of his mind, Douglas invited any honest white man to treat him as an equal citizen of his community and therefore worthy of an appeal to his mind in order to deserve election. What was this but an exercise of free speech that appealed to free speech? A reminder that government by consent is a two-way street involving the freedom to think and argue on the part of both the rulers and the ruled. No one knew this better than Abraham Lincoln, who once said in this and like communities, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Consequently, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces decisions. He makes statutes and decisions possible or impossible to be executed. Lincoln's speeches before and during his presidency showed a concern for maintaining a public square that protected freedom of speech as essential to the viability of self-government. He understood the genius of American self-government was the peaceful resolution of disagreements and conflicts at the, ba uh, the ballot box and a refusal to resort to bullets when ballots had failed. In February 1860, 
in a speech at New York's Cooper Institute. Lincoln cautioned Americans in the South about blaming Republicans for John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry, which occurred just a few months earlier. Southern slave owners tried to associate the Republican Party with fomenting slave revolts. Lincoln explained that no self-respecting Republican endorsed John Brown. More importantly, he suggested that even if Southerners were successful in imputing a bad reputation to the Republican Party, they would not have achieved their objective of destroying the sentiment that judged slavery to be wrong. How much would you gain, Lincoln proposed, by forcing the sentiment which created it out of the peaceful channel of the ballot box into some other channel? What would that other channel probably be? Would the number of John Browns be lessened or enlarged by the operation? I think about this every time I see a Confederate flag. I disagree with what that flag represents, but I appreciate that folks remain free to express their opinion this way on their own property. I prefer to live in a society that does not seek to drive unpopular opinions underground, but permits them to be expressed publicly where they can be subject to refutation. A free people should not be afraid to discuss opposing viewpoints. By doing so, we invite discussion, encourage appeals to fact and argument, rather than emotion and prejudice as the proper way to deliberate about political issues. In the same speech at Cooper Institute, where Lincoln made himself a credible candidate for the Republican nomination for president, he alluded to a speech by his Democratic rival, Stephen Douglas, entitled Invasion of States. In January of 1860, Douglas had argued on the Senate floor for a sedition law, a law to punish men whose words would incite slave revolts similar to John Brown. Douglas made clear that he had Lincoln in mind, as well as the odds-on favorite for the Republican nomination, Senator William Seward. Lincoln told fellow Republicans not to quail in the face of threats of dungeons to ourselves. Instead, he exhorted them to have faith that right makes might. And in that faith, let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. This charge operates, I think, on two levels. On a strictly partisan level, Lincoln was encouraging his audience to vote Republican later in that consequential year of 1860, trusting that this time around, the relatively new party would emerge victorious. It wouldn't be a wasted vote. But on a more profound regime level, to have faith that right makes might was a reminder of the fundamental premise of American self-government, namely that a free people could actually promote the common good and not merely use political might to serve the interests of one part of the community at the expense of the other. It was a call to rely on the political process and the rule of law to produce justice. The alternative would simply be might dictating right, a rejection of civil society and the protections afforded by a government owned and operated by the American people. Both Douglas and Lincoln defended free speech as a way to avoid violence as a means of pursuing justice. As Lincoln put it during the first year of the Civil War, Ballots are the rightful and peaceful successors of bullets. 
when ballots have fairly and constitutionally decided, there can be no successful appeal back to bullets. Having faith in government by consent of the governed can only be justified if that consent produces the rule of reason over the passions of the community. Constitutional self-government makes room for consent to be informed, both in the election of rulers and the operation of the constitutional mechanisms by which those rulers act on behalf of the citizenry. The founders taught Lincoln that a majority held in restraint by constitutional checks and limitations, always changing easily with deliberate changes of popular opinions and sentiments, is the only true sovereign of a free people. When Democrat James Buchanan was elected president in 1856, Republicans did not declare, not my president. They did not call for resistance. They respected Buchanan's election, obeyed the laws, but continued working to get Republicans into office at the national and state level. Four years later, they elected Lincoln to the presidency. But when Southern Democrats lost in 1860, instead of obeying Lincoln and his administration, they tried to establish a new nation by seceding from the United States. Lincoln flatly rejected this option, calling it the essence of anarchy. He believed that republics required good losers and good winners. Republicans had proven themselves good losers back in 56. Now Democrats could profit from their example. The establishment of constitutional government by the consent of the governed and the practice of the rule of law is what elevates us from the state of nature. Freedom of speech in this context is nothing more than an appeal to the consent of the governed as the only legitimate ruler of a free people. To speak in the public square is to argue, it's to make claims about justice and what government can rightly command citizens to do. It is an appeal to each other's reason in hopes that informed opinions rather than inflamed passions or righteous indignation will direct public policy for the sake of the common good. This requires a public space that permits the expression of opinions some of us consider wrong. A free society simply cannot do without the very freedom to think and argue that make an examined life worth living. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, next with uh, Dr. Myers. Uh, I had to unmute myself. Um, uh, first of all, thank you, Julian, and thank you, Dan and Catherine and uh, the University of Richmond for making all of this happen. But uh, my time is short, so let me get uh, let me get right to it. Frederick Douglass didn't write any statutes. He didn't frame any constitutions, he didn't command any armies, he didn't found any political orders. He was not a statesman, and it's not clear even that he entirely would have wanted to be one in the precise restrictive usage of the term. What he was uh, in 19th century parlance was an agitator, an activist who occupied himself mainly in what he liked to call the foolishness of preaching. 
he was not an ordinary agitator. He was the great agitator of 19th century America. He was the indispensable counterpart to the great emancipator. And being a great agitator, was he also something more than an agitator? Uh, at the risk of redundancy, um, here, is, uh, uh, here is Lincoln on the statesman's art uh, that you just heard from Lucas a few minutes ago. Um, Lincoln says, in this and like communities, public sentiment is everything. And he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces opinions. Um, and so I think by Lincoln's lights, the formation of public sentiment is not the whole of statesmanship, but it's the deepest and the most important of the statesman's tasks. And by Lincoln's standard, then, Douglas has a pretty strong claim to the title of statesman. And so what I want to do today is to very quickly, I'm afraid, sketch some different aspects of Douglas's understanding of and his own practice of statesmanship. What I'm going to give you is the uh, of actually quite severe distillation of a book chapter that discusses four of his most memorable and pertinent speeches uh, to this theme. And it's possible here, of course, to present only really small snatches of that discussion. So first speech. First speech is the most famous one, the, the July the 4th speech in 1852, which is often admired <clears throat> as a protest speech. And so it is uh, in the second, uh, second portion of that speech, he presents, Douglas presents a blistering critique of American practice. Uh, in this respect, it's true enough to say, I think, that Douglas channels the prophet Jeremiah. But there's a crucial remark in the speech uh, about claiming Washington to our father, uh, in which Douglas identifies himself, by implication, with another biblical figure, who is, which is John the Baptist. And that indicates uh, a certain complexity of design in that speech. Alongside the protest, there is an expression of civic piety. Um, in, the, in the first section, or if you like David Blight's uh, metaphor, the first movement of the speech, Douglas presents a concentrated reflection on the idea of statesmanship in his description of the founders. I don't know, again, uh, David, having gone through his books, maybe knows this. I don't know whether Douglas read classical political philosophers. I don't know whether he read Plato and Aristotle. Um, but he does, in the 4th of July speech, present the founders as exemplars of the classical virtues, exemplars of wisdom and courage and temperance and justice. Their, their statesmanship appears at the most general level as action on principle. They dedicated themselves and their new country to what Douglas called eternal saving principles. <clears throat> now, the wisdom of statesmanship is, uh, is of two kinds. It is theoretical and it is prudential. The virtue of a statesman is to be prudent as well as principled. And prudence is not really a quality that Douglas emphasizes in the founders, 
and, at least in this speech, and it is a quality about which Douglas himself was somewhat ambivalent. And yet, his praise of the founders in 1852 was itself, in part, a dictate of prudence. This means that Douglas's admiration of uh, the founders as statesmen is more than a depiction of statesmanship. It is, it is also uh, his practice of statesmanship. <clears throat> the context is, um, uh, is Congress's enactment, or at least a big part of the context, Congress's enactment a couple years previous uh, of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, a law Douglas said that stands alone in the annals of tyrannical legislation, most pro-slavery law Congress ever enacted, and by any fair reading, a flagrantly unconstitutional law. Now that law prompted a certain rashness in response among some of the friends of abolition. It elicited amplified calls uh, for emigration from, as we've heard, Martin Delaney, uh, and also amplified calls for disunion from Douglas's erstwhile mentor, William Lloyd Garrison, both of which Douglas rebuked here. Douglas was not unmindful of the defects of the founding or the founders, <clears throat> but he had come to see that those defects were not radical defects. So it was possible and it was prudent to defend the founding to separate it from the generation that enacted the Fugitive Slave Law. And the, the defense of the founders is defensible because whatever else they did or didn't, they got the first principles of the new order in place and thereby they gave the abolition movement American ground upon which it could stand. On to speech number two. Another important quality of statesmanship is steadfastness. Steadfastness that is showing the courage of one's convictions in holding fast to a just cause, especially in times that try men's souls. Said Winston Churchill in Great Britain's darkest hour, we shall never surrender. In what must have seemed the darkest hour for the abolition cause, Douglas said the equivalent. In the spring of 1857, the United States Supreme Court went well beyond the Congress in the act of entrenching slavery. It issued the most pro-slavery ruling in its history and speaking on the ruling in Dred Scott versus Sanford, Lincoln stated the grounds for pessimism. Justice Taney, in his opinion, claimed that white opinions of black Americans had grown more sympathetic since the founding. To that, Lincoln replied, I quote, as a whole in this country, the change between then and now is decidedly the other way. And their ultimate destiny, their blacks ultimate destiny, has never appeared so hopeless as in the last three or four years. That was Lincoln on Dred Scott. Frederick Douglass's response was quite different. After Dred Scott, and he really meant partly because of Dred Scott, 
<clears throat> my hopes were never brighter than now, he said. In his speech on the Dred Scott ruling, Douglas extended some of the themes that he sounded in 1852. The anti-slavery constitution, constitution he called a glorious liberty document in 1852, was indeed a cause for hopefulness. But Douglas knew in 1857 he needed more. The Constitution, as he understood it, had been misinterpreted for very many years. And so the question arises, why should one think this wouldn't continue for many more, especially after the Supreme Court had weighed in as it had? So Douglas needed and he presented a deeper grounding of hopefulness. <clears throat> in the hopefulness, as David Blight said last night and Melvin Rogers said uh, earlier this morning, there is a portion of providential faith. There is also an interesting natural law argument. Douglas's idea of natural rights was fundamentally Lockean, but it carried this interesting 19th century modification. The natural law, as Douglas understood it, was not simply normative or prescriptive. It was also predictive. The, the law of nature could not be a law, strictly speaking, without sanctions. And for Douglas, those sanctions were natural sanctions. And so in the Dred Scott speech, Douglas expresses confidence that slaveholders will overreach um, and they will threaten the rights of Northern whites. And this will mean eventually uh, slavery's destruction. But the reason slaveholders will overreach is that they'll feel, or at least a big part of the reason, is they will feel threatened by the rise of abolitionism. John Calhoun said so himself uh, a decade before threatened by the rise of abolitionism. And the reason abolitionism will rise is that those enslaved will show their humanity, their human love of liberty by acts of resistance, maybe by fight, maybe by flight, as circumstances permit. So Douglas's argument is that a, a chain of natural causes would eventually undo slavery. And further in the Dred Scott uh, uh, speech, he suggests he seems to think the culminating moment is near at hand. <clears throat> that prediction turned out to be broadly correct. But the end came ultimately by the actions of a president whom Douglas for a time regarded as altogether unfit for the great task assigned him. Speech number three uh, is Frederick Douglass's oration in memory of Abraham Lincoln uh, given on the occasion of the unveiling of the Freedmen's Monument. It's another puzzling speech because as he had done in 1852, here again, Douglas divides his voice. He exalts Lincoln and he diminishes Lincoln. He views Lincoln from what he called the statesman's perspective, um, which meant considering the political constraints Lincoln was under. Uh, and from that view, he, he judged Lincoln, uh, he rendered a highly laudatory judgment of Lincoln. He viewed Lincoln also from what he called the genuine abolition ground. 
Uh, and that view yielded a fairly harshly critical judgment of Lincoln. And the common reading of Douglass's uh, uh, adopting these two voices is that Douglass is expressing his, amb his ambivalence regarding Lincoln. I say about this that what seems ambivalence is more likely another dictate of prudence. Uh, here I can only summarize a little quickly and I hope not too cryptically, but Douglass's complex rendering of his subject in this speech reflects his somewhat paradoxical judgment that to vindicate Lincoln as emancipator, he needed to diminish Lincoln as savior. In this speech, Douglass's statesmanship, I think, counseled a show of ambivalence toward Lincoln to arouse a dissatisfaction, not really with Lincoln himself, but with the condition of disfranchisement that left Blacks dependent, so to speak, on the kindness of strangers, dependent on the beneficence of elected officials responsible only to others. Shortly thereafter, that dissatisfaction and, uh, and dependency became even more glaringly evident. Speech number four. A few years later, the occasion is the Supreme Court's ruling in the civil rights cases, 1883, in which the Supreme Court invalidated the Civil Rights Act of 1875 that mandated non-discrimination in public accommodations. Douglas thought that ruling was a moral and a national calamity. It was comparable to the one inflicted by the same Supreme Court a quarter century about previous in the Dred Scott Room. But this time in response, Douglas does not say my hopes were never brighter than now. He does not predict a quick end to race discrimination in America. He counsels lawfulness but he also revisits the idea of the law of nature, which he presents now in a somewhat more chastened and realistic version as a source of admonition. Here's the operative quotation. Says Douglas, it may not be felt at the moment and the evil day may be long delayed, but so sure as there is a moral government of the universe, so sure will the harvest of evil come. Racism and republicanism in America are not in symbiotic relation to one another, as some later historians and social scientists have argued. Um, in Douglass's view, racism is a profoundly destabilizing force in, Republican, in, in the American Republic. A, a last concluding thought. Pretty early on in his abolitionist career, Douglas commented, the sum of my politics can be encapsulated in the proverb, righteousness exalteth a nation. That teaching led him into occasional excess. It sometimes inclined him, as it did Garrison, to suppose that righteousness alone action dictated by pure uncompromising principle could suffice as prudently conceived policy. But in the main, 
the conviction that righteousness exalteth sustained his faith in American reform. And at the heart of his efforts was a distinctive understanding of the law of nature, grounded in an understanding of human nature that was realist, but not at all cynical or fatalist. In the composite nationality speech that David Blight was admiring last night, Douglas observed, nature has two voices, the one high, the other low which is one of the things, maybe the central thing that makes the law of nature a difficult and a necessary idea. To accomplish their objectives, statesmen need to achieve a certain fluency in both those voices. But more than that, they need to retain a steadfast faith in what Douglas called the upward tendency in human nature. Frederick Douglass was often compelled to address his fellow Americans as creatures of interest, but he never lost sight of their character as, of, as beings with souls, as moral beings. And so he addressed them as creatures of duty and honor, no less than of interest. His words again, the character we form and develop is the thing of all commanding and transcendent importance. That, that extended effort in character formation, I think, was the core of Douglas's greatness as a, as a statesman. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was great. Um, I guess my first question is if, to ask if either of you have questions for one another. Um, I'll take that silence as a no. <laughs> um, I, no I'm smiling I, only because I had, a, I had a question for Jim Oaks this morning, but I didn't write it down and uh, the time got away from us, but I'll, I'll, I'll save that for now. And, I, and I, yeah, I, I have a brief question, but I'm gonna guess yours is better, Julian. So I wanted to kind of cede the floor. Uh, oh, I don't know. Um, I have a question for you, by the way. Um, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about like white unwillingness, uh, um, and the reluctance, I thought I kept, you know, how much of it is just misunderstanding? I went, what would Douglas, I mean, like, what did Douglas have to say about, you know, you know, black agency and resistance being often misunderstood uh, by, the, by his white counterparts? You know, I'm thinking about Robin Kelly's book a long time ago about infra-political resistance in the ways that African-Americans um, or en enslaved people thought about, um, freedom and thought about emancipation in a way sometimes it was misunderstood by their white counterparts. Uh, where did, where, did he have anything, to, this, that's actually a real question by the way, did he have anything to say about that, right? Uh, well, I mean, my answer I think is gonna be uh, uh, less satisfying than some of my colleagues here could say, but uh, yes, I mean, so, I mean, one of the great examples from the autobiographies, right, is his discussing the common misconception of slave spirituals, right, and, and that sort of understanding. Now, there is in a lot of Douglas's writings um, or observations, sociological observations, the question is, is that a genuine misunderstanding on behalf of whites, be they northern or southern, is that a kind of propagandistic misunderstanding? Is that a willful misunderstanding, a kind of bad faith depiction? Um, but I do, I, I, I certainly think that there is, I, I think that Douglas is keyed into that. I, I mean, the one thing and why I'm so happy to be on this panel uh, with Drs. Morrill and, and Myers is how well the, 
I think these papers complement one another. I don't want to suggest at all in my rendition of the heroic slave um, that those are the only sorts of ways he thought about the problem of white unwillingness or even about action, truth, the content of truth, bearing witness. Um, as we all know, Douglas is a, 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 a deep and voluminous thinker, sometimes contradictory, sometimes complicated. And so, um, yeah, but, but again, I, I'm sure there are lots of other examples I'm not thinking of that would better speak to that point. Thank you. You're welcome. So there's a quote out there that I'd like to read. Um, uh, and maybe it'll generate some discussion. It's from uh, Nicholas Bucola. And uh, it says, it's a quote it, when Douglas, uh, I'm sorry, when uh, Frederick Douglas was talking to Stephen Douglas. And it's, it is, uh, he asks on the question of Douglas, on, of Douglas on deplatforming. I always think of Douglas's speech on Senator Stephen Douglas in 1854. In that speech, Douglas said this, I understand that Mr. Douglas regards himself as the most abused man in the United States and that the greatest outrage ever committed upon him was in the case in which your indignation raised your voices so high that it could not be heard. I did not mention this circumstance to approve it. I do not approve it. I am for free speech as well as for free men and free soil. But how ineffably it's insignificant is this wrong done in a single instance and to, single out, and to a single individual compared with the stupendous iniquity perpetuated against more than three millions of American people who are struck dumb by the very men in whose cause Stephen Douglas was here to plead, right? While it would not approve the silencing of Mr. Douglas, may we not hope that this slight of abridgment of his rights may lead him to respect in some degree the rights of other men. Frederick Douglass, mic drop, right? <laughs> just um, just the, the, I've always found the way that Douglass articulated his points to be just artistic, right? He, he's making, it's, you know, whoever, who, you know, you know, whoever thought that African-Americans and enslaved people um, uh, were not fully recognized human beings, would would have to walk away from the way that Douglas uh, articulated himself, thinking otherwise. It's just it's just masterful, right? It's yeah. almost as right. Uh, I was just going to interject here. It, <laughs> it, it pays to remind ourselves here that when things were so bad in December of 1860, Stephen Douglas proposed two amendments to the Constitution. What would have been our 13th and 14th amendments? The 14th amendment, first clause would have banned black people from holding political office at any level in any state, territory, or federal government, and would have banned them from voting at any level. He wanted that racial component to be inserted into the Constitution. Uh, that's the character that we're dealing with there. Right. It looks like David Blight, or uh, did, did, Dr. Blight, did you want to, did you want to, <laughs> the camera came on, so I assume that you wanted to chime in here, right? Oh, your mute button's on. I'm so sorry. Anyway, I just want to say that this was a brilliant session. Uh, one thing that I thought tied in all three was this <laughs> of the insecurity 
of the other side, the insecurity of white supremacy, the insecurity of the slave power, the insecurity of, of slaveholders themselves. It's as though even in the darkest moments, he could have this faith as, as uh, uh, Professor Meyer said, he could have this faith that somehow the Dred Scott case is gonna lead to, to, to good ends because the slave power is gonna kill itself. It's so insecure. Uh, and that's, that's there in Lucas, that's kind of your point, you know, I, I found. And even in the, you know, old Liswell, it's as though Douglas understands this insecurity among whites. And he'd, he'd learned it the hard way, hadn't he, on the Y plantation. That's, I just wanted to say that. It, it is something that all of you sort of touched on here. And can, I say, can I say a couple of things more about that? Uh, sure. That, that, uh, that uh, that, that, Julian, your original question about uh, about uh, about Nolan's white unwillingness um, concept led me to tie in a thing or two between that discussion and uh, some of the things that I was that I was getting at. I mean, I I think that uh, the Douglas' point about that is it, it's not that there it's not that there's an unwillingness because they're white. It's an unwillingness because they're human. Um, that that. Uh, you know, the, the, I mean, this is, in other words, in the passage I quoted, that this is the low voice of human nature, that people are naturally far more concerned with protecting their own rights than they are with protecting rights of those with whom they don't identify, you know, for whatever reason, for whom they don't feel, they don't feel a kind of moral sympathy. Um, Douglas says this a few times uh, that I didn't quote in the, in the talk, and he says, it is, it, is, it is much easier to forgive people who wrong you than it is to forgive people to whom you do wrong, right? Mm -hmm. That there's a, there's a natural, along with, uh, along with the natural preference for your own rights, there's a natural desire to think well of yourself, to justify yourself. Uh, and, uh, and, and all of that makes it kind of natural. That uh, the people are going to be unwilling um, to come face to face with a with a monstrous wrong that they that they are somehow complicit in. That's, uh, what, what, that's yeah. About that. I, I, you know, even I also find it pretty amazing um, to to think about uh, what Dick Blight was saying in relationship to uh, how Douglas viewed um, his counterparts. There's also something to say that like his hopefulness also being a, it's gotta be a, a, a reflection of what African-Americans had to endure um, as enslaved people and, uh, you know, decade in and decade out and, you know, having this, this spirit to, to, to not see the Dred Scott decision as rock bottom is as much, I also think it's a reflection of, of, um, their experiences as actual enslaved people and recognizing um, that they've, they've been able to push through these things as bad as slavery was, um, they mustered up the collective courage to get through it in a way that I think has to inform the way that Frederick Douglass thinks about um, that Supreme Court decision, right? Um, He's, he says something like that in, um in the Lincoln speech, in the, that 1876 Lincoln speech, when I think one of the, one of the subtexts of that speech is that uh, Douglas is talking about Lincoln's statesmanship and what he's really describing is African-Americans' statesmanship. 
uh, at least right. in a portion of the speech. Um, right. and, and, uh, and the subtext of that is that he's making a claim for voting rights. When he concludes the speech, we're, we're doing a good work for our race today um, because we're illustrating we had patience with Lincoln, which, you know, historically isn't entirely true of Douglas himself. He had right. to say about Lincoln in 1861 and 1862. But, you know, in 1876, he's looking back on this and he says, you know, we, we, had, we were patient with Lincoln. You know, we saw that he's under some electoral constraints, that he's not able to do everything that we would want him to do instantly. Um, but we saw the end, you know, we saw the, we saw the bigger picture. Um, and uh, so far as that's true, then that would be a very strong claim for you know this group of people to have suffrage rights among among other things. It, it seems in some instances, I think if there's a, another similarity in, in all of these um, on all these stuff that Douglas takes democracy more seriously than his counterparts in some right. Um, he's all in on this. Right? It's, um, he, he's a true believer, and I think um, in a way that Stephen Douglas was not, um, and it's, it's quite fascinating. There's one more. Do we have time for one more? There's another question in the, um, so it's, it's, um, it says, I'm slightly unsure uh, that Professor Moore has captured Douglas's outlook on the conference flag, uh, on the Confederate flag. Um, in 1878, he was clear that there was a right side and a wrong side to the Civil War. And in 1870, he was clear, monuments to the lost cause will prove monuments of folly. In the memories of a wicked rebellion, which they must necessarily perpetuate, it is a needless record of stupidity and wrong. This suggests an intense rejection of the Confederate flag and the Confederate statues. And that, the intense uh, um, to hold on to those things is in fact an attempt to confront the wrongness represented by those symbols. Yeah, I completely agree with that statement. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, what I don't believe that Frederick Douglass would argue, for example, a ban on uh, the flag. He, what he was worried about was that, you know, as he kept saying, there was a right side to this war. And what he wanted to see over and over and more and more uh, were um, actions in keeping with the Union victory in that Civil War. And that to the extent that you had Confederate flags, monuments, and more importantly, uh, to the extent that you had Southern governments that were being successively redeemed, quote unquote, by former rebels, uh, to that extent, uh, Northern whites were not remembering that the Civil War had a right side to it. And that they were too quick in his mind, too ready to make peace with uh, men who used to be shooting at them and to take for granted uh, what blacks had been doing during that war and to not do enough to gain them to their side by guaranteeing them the right to vote, by protecting, as David uh, put it last night, protecting their civil and political rights. Um, to the extent that they were not doing that, then yes, it, it, it was supremely frustrating for Frederick Douglass to see people still, still uh, uh, waving the rebel flag, as it were. But I don't, I don't see him arguing um, for any sort of ban or, um, uh, you know, making it illegal uh, to fly those things. He just wanted to make sure that if you have, if, if they get to fly that, we get to explain why it's wrong and, um, and, and we'll, let, we'll, we'll let the cards um, play out the way they will. You can't I think that's help. very important. 
right. very important. He had the audacity to think you could defeat the lost cause in the public square. Right. He was, a, it was about a century early with that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't help but wonder what he would think about the continuity of, you know, Confederate iconography and the fact that we're still having these debates um, in 2020, right? And what he might have to say about this. The most popular Civil War memorabilia by far, as Gary Gallagher has pointed out, is Confederate memorabilia. Right. Well, I think that's our time. Uh, thank you for a wonderful um, uh, uh, three presentations and discussion. Thank folks. you, Julian. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so uh, much.